1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Franklin Roosevelt said, Libraries are essential to the functioning of a democratic society. Public libraries not only make information available to everyone, but further illustrate a democratic ideal as community gathering places. The Fulton County Library System is providing a virtual community with classes, story times and special events. We'll also hear about the role of the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American history and culture in response to the pandemic and recent protests. Playwright Lorraine Hansberry believed in the power of art, and theater in particular, to help bring about social change. We'll listen back to an interview about a documentary on Hansberry's life and work. First, a contemporary look at the role of art during turbulent times. An individual's creative self-expression may be through more than one form of art. The paintings of Fahamu Peku are in major museums and in noted private collections on several continents. Dr. Peku is also an interdisciplinary performance artist, His entire body of visual, literary, and performance art addresses contemporary representation of Black masculinity and its interpretation. He joins us now via Zoom. Vahamu Peku, welcome back to City Lights.
2: it's always a pleasure to join you, Lois. Thank you for having me.
1: To begin... Would you please read from your poem, "Broken Open"? Ah, uh, sure. Broken, broke and hoping, broke in hoping,
2: broke, and hoping, broke, kin hoping. Broke. hoping, broken, hoping. hoping, broken, open, broken, open,
1: break. Mm. The message and the meaning within that poem is all the more powerful through your use of wordplay and double entendres, certainly fully evident in your 2016 exhibition, Black Matter Lives, as well as more recent artwork. What has been swirling through your mind and heart in recent weeks, about the protests surrounding the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the Black Lives Matter movement.
2: Uh, There's so much that has been going through my mind. I've, like many people, experienced a range of emotions and anxiety hope, frustration, joy, laughter, Uh, you know, it's run the gamut. But ultimately, I'm very, very, very much encouraged in the awakening, I think, uh, is probably the most appropriate word, but the awakening that's happening um, around the country uh, and around the world, um, as a result of these protests, as a result of this uprising. For me, you know, it's, it's been an interesting thing to see. It's, this is a subject that I've been addressing in my work for over 20 years. And to see so many people now responding and reacting and, and you know, seeking to engage is really encouraging.
1: Well, it's heartening to hear you say that. I saw that you put out a Facebook video to white people who want to unite with the cause. What advice have you been giving to those who reach out to you?
2: You know, I I think that there are so many people, very well-intentioned, who want to know how they can help or what they can do or what position they can take within this moment and you know there's just there's a sort of double-edged feeling that i have around that on one hand it's you know as i said before it's encouraging to see so many people waking up to you know this reality and, and and seeking to engage but on another hand it's equal it's equally frustrating because a lot of what it's playing out now. A lot of what's, you know, sort of taking center stage is not new. This is not anything that people have not been aware of. And the only way that one can really argue an unawareness is by acknowledging their own sort of willful ignorance around the implications of white supremacy and social injustice and racial disparities that impact uh, non-white communities of of people. And so the the questions uh, that I've received from, you know, from, again, from really well-intentioned people, you know, around what they should be doing, I've, I've found myself responding more so by asking them in turn, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to admit? What are you willing to accept? What are you willing to change? Um, Because I think ultimately, the course uh, that one needs to take to really see the dismantling of these systems that um, uh, pivot us against each other that uh, disproportionately um, impact Black and poor people is the work of self-reflection. Like, you know, we all have to take ownership of the ways in which anti-Blackness has colored our lives and, and inform our thoughts and inform our actions. And it's not enough to just make a donation to one of the many charities. It's not enough to, you know, post a statement on your social media page because the work that needs to be done is deep and complex and complicated. And there's no one who can give you, you know, a, a magic pill or a silver bullet that will make this all right. We have to get our hands dirty in this, to, to unravel the ways in which anti-Blackness and racism and white supremacy are interwoven into every facet of our lives. Um, and that takes work.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, racial injustice in this country has been going on for centuries. Yes. And I'm at a loss because I don't understand how we are seeing the same horrific things happen. I think that this makes me wonder about the role of the artist in coming to terms with tragedy. For example, your work, you are constantly socially engaged with your art in the midst of a protest Where does art fit in?
2: I think art is one of the most powerful vehicles for the types of social change that we are seeking. There's something to be said about the voice of the poet versus the voice of the politician, about the voice of the singer versus, you know, the voice of the the civic leader or whatever you want to call them. Like, there's a way that art can communicate to us and communicate to our interior spaces that, you know, mere rhetoric cannot convey. And I I think that we we have seen that over the course of these types of uh, civil and social justice movements throughout history. You know, when we think about the civil rights movement, you know, for as long as those campaigns were were going on and you had, you know, quite eloquent speakers and and representatives were behind, you know, podiums and pulpits and, you know, expressing the frustrations of of people. But when James Brown started singing, I'm Black and I'm Proud, that connected to people in ways that, that go far beyond any speech. There's, like, in, in the last um, few years, we've seen a, a shift uh, amongst um, museums and galleries and, and within the art world to promote the work of artists who were active during the 60s and 70s, you know. And, and the power in those images, the power in those objects are just as resonant and just as powerful today as they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago but it's because the language that art speaks is a language that goes beyond any particular country border or you know state border or you know whatever it may be like even if you don't speak english you can look at a painting of Wadsworth Jarrell and feel the power in it you can understand betty sar's uh, sculptures you can get into the work of hank willis thomas you can go deeply into conversations with these artists without necessarily having the quote-unquote right words uh to say and i think that makes art a a powerful vehicle for these times and i always say in the future historians will tell what happened but artists will tell how it felt
1: how do you get people who need to see the art who need to experience the messages if they're not receptive?
2: Well, that, that is, I think, a part of the reason that we are in the place that we are now. You know, again, this, this type of artwork isn't new, this type of messaging isn't new, this type of upheaval isn't new. I think that America has largely projected a sort of willful ignorance around anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. And conversations around race, the inequities around race, especially in places where certain people benefit from those inequities and, and certain people suffer as a result of them, create a great amount of anxiety and discomfort. And so people would rather pretend that they don't see these things, pretend that they don't hear these things, um, than acknowledge them and do the work that it takes to unravel and undo them.
1: Hamid, yeah. this this made, me think of something you wrote about saying the names of those who've been murdered, why that is essential, and it brought to mind Maya Angelou's Still I Rise. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about that piece you wrote? Yes. It was in regard to Broken, wasn't it?
2: Yes. It was... The um, what, what I said was that we cannot be broken. We do not break. And for far too long, we've been afraid that their violence would end us, but we are still here. And that when we call the names of the victims of this kind of violence, when we say the names of All of those Black people who are now, you know, amongst our ancestors, when we call those names, those names are powerful because there is no way that anyone can deny the inhumanity that it takes or that one must muster to try to justify putting your knee on the neck of a person who's already constrained for nine minutes until the life drains out of them there There's no way that anybody can justify something that horrific yet, and still this country has always tried to justify the inhumane treatment of of black people through all manner of clever spins on on language and clever spins on law and the time is up now' it's, it's uh, i don't I don't know that that we can ever go back to a time where that's acceptable. And, and, and we shouldn't allow it. You know, if, if a week from now we're back to, quote unquote, normal, we've done all of ourselves a disservice.
1: On Tuesday, June 2nd, Instagram was covered in black squares as a way to show solidarity for African-American voices. They used the hashtag Blackout Tuesday. And that same day, black music executives started hashtag the show must be paused, a social media initiative, writing, It is a day to take a beat for an honest, reflective, and productive conversation about what actions we need to collectively take to support the Black community. Fahamu, what are your reactions to these initiatives? I
2: I think for the most part that there is sincere desire to be an ally in the struggle. But I also worry and I, I caution against people using this as an opportunity to try to deflect their own failures where it comes to social justice. Like, for example, um, the NFL participated in the Blackout uh, Tuesday with a, a statement about their support and solidarity with Black lives. Yet they railroaded Colin Kaepernick out of a career for taking a silent knee during the national anthem. And it's those kinds of things that, are equally as treacherous. And I think that we have to continue to put pressure on organizations, especially if they make a statement about their support. Then we have to hold them accountable um, for that support. You know, we're 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 in a moment now where no one wants to look like the bad guy. You know, and so people are looking for a quick fix or a mask that they can wear that will allow them to appear supportive but if their actions if their work if their efforts don't reflect that same level or statement or declaration of support then we have to hold them accountable we have to demand that you not only say what you're going to do but that you do what you say right it's like uh james baldwin uh said i can't believe what you say because i see what you do
1: Mm. I was thinking about your discussion of the role of the artist and the power of the artist's message. I remember reading that Nina Simone was so torn up and full of rage after the four little girls were killed in that Birmingham church bombing. that. She went to her garage and tried to put together uh, metal, different pieces to make a gun. And her husband saw her and he said, What are you doing? You don't know how to kill people. Go, go do your music. Mm-hmm. And it was after that that she wrote Mississippi Goddamn. Mm-hmm. Have you been painting recently?
2: Yes, I'm 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 always I'm always painting.
1: I mean your work for as long as you've been an artist has encompassed the black diaspora and reflecting the centuries of injustice against African Americans, have the events of recent weeks inspired any recent work? Of yours,
2: I would say that my my work is less reactionary in that regard. For me, this is less about like a a, a hashtag or uh, trying to depict a, a, a moment. I, I am thoroughly invested in creating work that. Challenges us, that moves us, that pushes us beyond uh, where we are comfortable, um, that pulls us out from the the spaces that we attempt to hide in, and that won't change. You know, I will continue to do this type of work, and you know, the, it, there there at some point may be a, a a piece that speaks to this particular moment, but the challenges of, of anti-Blackness that that affect us and that affect me go well beyond uh, this moment. And I'm very, very much um, uh, conscious of, of that as I think about my work and think about my practice. It's a very complicated experience, um, this Black experience. It's a very diverse and a very varied experience. And so there's so much work to be done that it, it will be difficult to just for me to just kind of fixate on a, on, on this particular moment. I think there's a, a, like enough people and in, 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 in enough artists and enough writers and historians who will talk about this particular moment. But within that, there's still so much more that needs to be expressed and articulated and where I ultimately end up uh, is, I, I don't know quite yet, but whatever I do will always continue to engage with the experience and expressions of, of blackness and and how we can work to become better as individuals, better as a community, better as a society, better as a world.
1: Dr. Fahamu Peku, thank you for your work and for your hopeful outlook. It's always a privilege to talk with you.
2: Thank you very much. It's always a joy to be here.
1: Artist Dr. Fahamu Peku. You can see his artworks and learn more about him on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. Libraries closed when shutdowns due to the coronavirus pandemic took place, but that doesn't mean they've stopped being a community resource. The Fulton County Library System continues to offer virtual classes, story times, lectures, and other events to the public, in addition to their selection of e-books available for checkout. Joining me now to talk about the shift to an online presence and upcoming events are Victor Simmons, Director of the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African American Culture and History, along with Claudia Strange, the public relations and marketing manager for the library system. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you for having us. Would you give us an overview, please, of how the library system has had to adapt to operations during the pandemic? Sure.
3: Well, you know, I think at first we were all just Taken aback really just by everything that was happening. I think all of us, you know, had had things going on at home that we were also navigating as well as trying to figure out how we could continue to provide meaningful service while our doors are closed. And, you know, one of the things that we've been doing for a couple of years now was a streaming story time that we did every week on Thursday evenings as a kind of help get your little one to sleep. and And that kind of helped us be prepared to do that kind of thing in other formats. You know, so one of the things that we immediately started doing was brainstorming among all of our staff about what kind of programs can we provide, you know, through our Facebook page, through Instagram and YouTube, with whatever our folks have at home. And our kind of virtual programming was was birthed from those little ideas coming from all parts of our staff. And And the other thing that really that we really had to accommodate for was, was library cards. While everyone was running to the grocery store to stock up on toilet paper and hand sanitizer, they weren't running to come grab their library card real quick before we closed. So when, you know something that we didn't typically offer online was something we very quickly had to find a way to offer online.
4: It is one of those things that I think what gets lost upon a lot of people as they walk into the Auburn Avenue Research Library is we're very well known for our programming. But people lose sight of the fact that we're also a library and a research library at that. We've been called many things. People have called us an art gallery. People have called us a museum. And we are all of the above. What I would suggest is that anyone who visits our website, is there's, there's an area that has our finding aids. In there, you'll be able to see all of the items that we have in our possession, all of the items that are digitized that are within our collection. You know, I always have to tell people we are the home of the Andrew Young papers. We also house Hosea Williams' papers, Donald Lee Hollowell's collection, Dr. Barbara King's papers the NAACP Atlanta branch records, the Atlanta life insurance records. We house all of those things. And so, you know, moving forward, especially within the constraints of of the COVID-19 pandemic, is, you know, we're, we're looking at ways in which we can also assist those interested in research, also assist those who are trying to somehow come in contact with some of those archival items. And as we kind of transition back into the space, we will start to add that virtual aspect to what we do
1: sounds like enormous tasks before you one of the events the library is hosting every weekday is streaming story time in which special guest readers share books with a virtual audience monday you had stacy abrams and tomorrow you'll have singers from the Atlanta Opera, I understand. What will they read or, or will they be singing?
3: So they'll be doing a little bit of both. With some of our guest readers, it's been really fun to see how they incorporate their craft into, into the story time. Because typically it's just it's been librarians who do, you know, your basic sing-songy kid song and a couple of books during a, a story time at a branch. So now we're getting to see folks bringing in you know, really fun instruments. Dad's Garage Theater did it a week ago and did some like improv and and fun voices and characters. So it's been really neat to see everyone that we've been partnering with bring in their own take on story time. And, and of course, they do read their own stories. Sometimes we um, will suggest titles that they can grab on one of our e-resources, but a lot of times they have books at home that they that they want to use that kind of relate to whatever area their talent falls in. So we've just had a lot of really, really cool takes on story time.
1: Oh, Yeah. I would find it hard to decide which book to read. (laughs) In addition to story time, there are events like cooking classes for kids and adults, fitness classes, interesting, language learning, crafts, book clubs, and more. This is a very ambitious roster of events. What does it take to organize all of this virtually?
3: It's been really exciting to watch folks from all across our branches, people who are not typically used to working together. So we may have somebody in Alpharetta working with somebody in Palmetto, working with somebody in Midtown on one team virtually to create how to make vegan pancakes (laughs) for adults. And so it's been really neat to see these teams form, but it's, it's quite an undertaking. So every team has someone that does the video recording, another person who does their their graphics, another person who's doing their writing, and they're all working together to create this amazing slate of programs. And we, you know, once we started getting it down and getting all the ideas coming in, it, we, it was amazing to see the not only the great ideas folks had, but also the kind of, diff- you know, side talents that folks had. We have I had no idea how many people we had that, that could teach a fitness class, whether it be yoga or, or weights or meditation. So that's been really fun too, to see everybody's special skills that, that they've been sharing with us.
1: What can someone expect when participating in one of the classes you offer?
3: So, what they can expect is to first of all, see a familiar face. So, someone from one of the local libraries, all of this is done by our staff. Unless it's a special guest for streaming story time, everybody else is librarian staff. One of our librarians who is one of the fitness instructors, may show you how to do some basic, very basic weight training, but with stuff that you might have around the house. Like if you don't have weights at home, you can use, you know, a gallon jug of milk or or how you can, create a really cool craft with your child out of like coffee filters. What you'll see is our librarians looking for ways to creatively engage the public on our social media sites without having to go out and pick up a bunch of supplies to do it.
1: Focusing specifically on the Auburn Avenue Research Library now, Victor, with the deaths of Black Americans including Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd at the hands of police, spurring nationwide protests that are now in their second week. What do you see as the role of the Auburn Avenue Library at this time?
4: For me and for most of my staff, the thing that stands out about all of these things is that we know that what we are is an institution of history. And this is nothing new. These, these things have been happening for years. If anyone is anywhere near familiar with what we do at Auburn Avenue Research Library programmatically, we've, we've addressed these issues and have been continuously addressing all of these issues for years. And so what we have been and what we will continue to do is inform, especially during these times where so many of our elders are, are passing from the virus, is to, to be the, that source of information, to, to let the, the younger in, um, generation understand that someone was doing something similar to what you're doing today 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and, and being able to be that source of information that can help make them make the right decisions and, and, and avoid the mistakes that may have been made in the past so that real change can actually happen.
1: Yeah. You are demonstrating that a library can act as an agent for social change.
4: Yeah, one of our goals when our shutdown occurred, from that very moment I, I had a plan in place, just waiting for the opportunity, you know, to say, Hey, I can get these, you know, my staff members back to work and really pushing out um, content via our social media. You know, uh, again, we, we as well have a story time specifically from the Auburn Avenue Research Library, the Africana Virtual Story Time, but we also post regularly to our Instagram. We have a, a We Read Black Book Club recommendation. So where the staff is picking books that we are suggesting for other book clubs out there who may need or are searching for a new book to read for the coming months, we're giving those those suggestions. We're giving them archival tips on how to maintain photos, how to digitize photos at home, and how to really organize collections so for for you know just to prepare them for that time when when they want to call the Auburn Avenue Research Library and say, hey, I have this collection of, of family photos of family heirlooms and we really want to give that to the library. For
1: for prosperity. You are going beyond the grave concerns of the pandemic and the protests with those initiatives. Thursday evening at 7, the library will rebroadcast a lecture from November of 2018 that was presented by Angela J. Davis called policing the black man arrest prosecution and imprisonment can you tell us about this lecture
4: i think that if anyone hasn't had the opportunity to read the book they definitely should like i said before these are not new instances this it i think that we're, we're, what we're in the midst of is the, the 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 perfect storm so these things that we've addressed in the past are are now even more relevant, and thus that's why we are rebroadcasting that discussion. If people are truly interested in in really getting to understand the the situation, the dynamics between what's happening in the Black communities and, and what's happening with the police forces and the treatment of African Americans on a daily basis within our culture, this program will definitely shed some light on some of those questions that they may have.
1: Wednesday at 7 p.m., the library will host... Africana Virtual Storytime featuring the children's book Juneteenth for Maisie, written and illustrated by Floyd Cooper. How did you select that book for this week's story time?
4: Well, we, we wanted to make sure that we, we did something for Juneteenth and have that on our schedule and we thought what what better way than to reach our children, who need something to do in this time. I mean, I, I have two children of my own, and from time to time, they they come to me and they're a little weary about the, you know, the situation. And of course, you know, they want to go and hang outside and go see their friends and play in parks, and they haven't been able to do that. But we at the Auburn Avenue Research Library we saw this as an opportunity to not only entertain. A, a large portion of our users, which are children at times, but to also educate them on, on a subject that they may not may not, may not learn in school. I know when I was a child, Juneteenth was not taught <laughs> to, to me in, in the classroom. I had to come to that realization as an adult, so if we can instill that idea of this special time for African Americans in the Americas, especially, we wanted to make sure that we we did the right thing come Juneteenth.
1: Do you feel that a library can still fulfill its mission even when physical locations are closed to the public?
3: It's certainly a lot harder. And, you know, no, you know, not completely. I don't think there's no one who wants to get back to those buildings more than our staff. And I think that's because they know that as much as libraries are a source of information that yes, you can still get online and and programs that yes, we now know we can offer online. They're also a, a community gathering place. They're also a place where people enjoy coming together, not just to have someone read them or their kid a story or, or to take a language class and learn, you know, Japanese. But, you know, it's also, you know, a place where they can get together with community members and just exchange ideas or just even pleasantries. I think in a world where we're also engrossed in our phones and now in Zoom meetings and computers and, and nonstop technology, I think that thing will never be able to be replaced. And I think that's what we're all the most looking forward to getting back to.
1: Claudia Strange is public relations and marketing manager of the Fulton County Library System. Victor Simmons is the director of the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American culture and history. You can find links to their upcoming events on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. The playwright Lorraine Hansberry is famous for her work, A Raisin in the Sun, the first play written by an African-American woman to be produced on Broadway. Less known is that her influence went far beyond that classic. Tracy Heather Strain made the first feature length documentary about Lorraine Hansberry, cited Eyes Feeling Heart, which aired nationwide on PBS. When we spoke in 2018, the filmmaker began describing the impact of discovering Lorraine Hansberry's work.
0: I'm not exactly sure what inspired me, but when I first encountered Lorraine Hansberry when I was 17, there was something about her as presented in the play To Be Young, Gifted, and Black that just touched me. Um, I'd never encountered an African-American woman who thought about race and class and gender the way it was presented in that play. Um, and I she just kind of stayed in my head. And then years later... When Spike Lee and other independents were making a call to make black film, even though I wasn't a filmmaker, I was like, "There should be a film about Lorraine Hansberry." So this is the mid '80s, and I get into filmmaking, and eventually, here we are. Um, but we count the beginning of this project in 2014. But I'd been thinking about Lorraine and doing research on and off for years. So yes, it is more than just a sort of labor
1: of love. It's almost like a calling. It sounds like it, and um, you deliver it. It's great to hear. Thank you. (laughs) Truly. Your film conveys how much Lorraine Hansberry ought to be known. Her work has such resonance in our own time. Sidney Poitier's Oscar for his performance in Lilies of the Field, which was released in 1964, five years after the Broadway premiere of A Raisin in the Sun, how important was Sidney Poitier to the success of the play and later the film? Sidney Poitier was very
0: important to the success of A Raisin in the Sun, even though it was very challenging for them to raise the money for the play because no one wanted to fund a play about African-Americans that was a drama. Um, Because Sidney Poitier was already the biggest black movie star, they were able to raise money based on his involvement. And he's the one that already knew Lloyd Richards and recommended his friend Lloyd Richards to be the director. By the way, A Raisin in the Sun is the first play by an African-American woman to be produced on Broadway. Um, Other, you know,
1: Langston Hughes had a play on Broadway before that,
0: and some other people too.
1: So Sidney Poitier was crucial to getting the funding for the play and later the movie, I mean, what 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 did it take? Uh, it, almost a year that what, what, the man's rose, was the name Phil Rose, was it? Yes, Phil
0: Rose was Lorraine Hansberry's friend and her husband's friend through their radical left circles, and he was a record producer, and he came to the first reading of the play that became A Raisin in the Sun, And was really struck by the characters. And he calls her up and says, I want to produce your play, and I want to produce it on Broadway. And I think Lorraine, based on what I know from the research, she didn't expect her play to go to Broadway. She thought her play would be performed maybe in Harlem like her friends who were playwrights' plays, you know, had been performed. So, um, yeah, it was challenging from the raise the money. In fact, before there was a Kickstarter, it seemed like Raisin in the Sun was the money was raised in small increments. Harry Belafonte was one of the larger funders of uh, A Raisin in the Sun, but Phil Rose took the money where he could if get it, and he only had enough money for tryouts in two cities, New Haven and Philadelphia. And fortunately, each time it was performed, momentum started gathering. But they were doing this without any guarantee of a New York theater, And fortunately, the Schubert, uh, one of the Schubert's came to one of the Philadelphia performances and said, OK, we can do this. We will put you into New York. The thing that we don't have a chance to get into in the documentary is they didn't have a theater quite yet. So they sent the production to Chicago and then they brought them into New York.
1: And of course, with Lorraine Hansberry being from Chicago, there was significance in that, too, for a playwright. Lorraine Hansberry's own life, her own life story, has quite a dramatic narrative. Would you tell us about her roots? Yeah, sure.
0: Lorraine was born in the south side of Chicago in 1930. She was born to two parents who had gone to college. Her father became successful in real estate. He bought buildings and then cut them up into kitchenettes. He's known, uh, he was known as the kitchenette king. And um, and he was successful at it. Uh, and uh, Lorraine was the youngest of four children, separated by seven years. And so she spent a lot of time by herself. And her personality also seems to be one of a watcher, thinker, reader. and And she took in everything that was going on on the South Side during the Depression, during World War II, and was already interested in writing. She was very, very verbal. She also had a family that debated ideas, people came through the house, as her cousin Chanel Perry says, they they listened to these people talk, and they were also a very race-conscious family in the sense that they felt like it was their duty because they had were given much to, to do things to help change um, the fortunes of other African Americans. And one of the major things they were involved in is trying to open up more homes for African Americans because everyone was, most everyone was segregated in the south side of Chicago. Indeed.
1: And so here she's from this well educated, well to do family. Um, but that didn't protect her from racism. And she had a transformative shocking experience as a little girl
0: yes when she was seven years old her family as part of a test case moved to an all-white street and uh they were she and her sister were sitting on the porch and a mob came and the they had like a family bodyguard got them inside the house but someone threw a brick and the brick or piece of mortar almost hit lorraine and it was a traumatic thing that stayed with her. And the original ending of what became *A Raisin in the Sun* actually ended with the family moving out into the white neighborhood with a mob coming. So you can tell that, you know, it really, you know,
1: resonated with her. It was a, it was a, quite an emotional event yeah, and, for her. And, and such a little girl, and of course, sadly, countless families have to explain this sort of mentality to innocent children. We have this very refined, super intellectual person in the form of Lorraine Hansberry, who believes in the power of art, and theater in particular, to take on social issues. And it's all the more remarkable, I think, that Hansberry wanted to portray the struggles of working-class black people. What was extraordinary about her treatment of the characters in Raisin?
0: Well, I think Raisin and the Sun, first of all, as um, Amani Perry says on camera, this is like the first time Lorraine is presenting the interior life of the of the African-American experience, but also the interior of specific characters. So take, for example, the character Benita. Benita is a character based on her own self. She said, I was making fun of my 22-year-old self. And, um, you know, so the college girl trying a lot of different things wants to be something in the world. She wants to be a doctor. And she has this choice between two young men in her life. And, and so they represent, you know, one guy represents the kind of boy from a family similar to her own, you know, well off. And then she has the African student revolutionary, you know, um, as the other suitor. And so, you know, these are things that I think Hansberry had to encounter and wrestle with her, herself, so Benita's trying to make these kinds of choices and find her way, so you have that, but then you have this larger experience of you know african Americans you know people have all different aspirations and interests and goals, and she tries to present a a range of experiences the mother you know she came up to Chicago as part of the great migration that's one story right there. That's an important story in the American story. You know, the Great Migration really changed American cities.
1: Oh, yes. Um, Isabel Wilkerson lives in Atlanta, we're very proud to say. And um,
0: I love that book. That book, I, mean, I, I read that book because I
1: wanted to read it. The but warmth as, of other sides.
0: Yes. And I, but I also read it as a way to kind of think about stories about, you know, the the great migration because i wanted to make sure what i included in the as part of the great migration at least resonated in a way and i found her book so moving and helpful and i cried at oh, so yes. many
1: parts of it it is exquisite and uh, you know the the dialogue in a raisin in the sun reflects that that new world after migrating to chicago we have a clip of Sidney Poitier and Ruby D, that reveals some of the concerns, the struggles of our characters.
4: Charlie Atkins was a good-for-nothing loudmouth loud loud too, wasn't he? When he wanted me to go in the dry-cleaning business with him. Now he's grossing $100,000 a year. $100,000 a year. Still call him a loudmouth loud loud good-for-nothing. Oh, Walter. Oh, Walter. You're tired, ain't you, baby? You're oh so tired of everything. Me, the boy, the way we live in this beat-up hole, everything. Moaning and groaning all the time, but you wouldn't do nothing to help, would you? I mean, you couldn't be on my side that long for nothing, could
1: Walter, please, leave me alone.
4: Man needs a woman to back him up. You Walter! Mama would listen to you, and you know she listens to you more than she do me and Benny. She thinks more of you. Look, all you got to do is sit down with her one morning, when you're having your coffee and talking about things like you do. Just say kind of easy like that you've been thinking about this little Dean Walter he's so interested in but the store and all. Just keep sipping away at your coffee like what you're saying. Ain't that important to you? Before you know it, she's listening good and asking you questions. Then when I come home, I fill in the details. Please leave me alone. Okay, hey, a Fly-by-night operation? I mean, we got this thing figured out, me, William and Bobo.
1: What is Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee? What is he pleading for?
0: He wants his wife to support this idea that he has to invest in a liquor store. And the film the play and the film is about this clash of what to do with 10000 a 10000 dollar insurance check that the family received after the- Walter Lee's father's character died. And um, everyone wants something different. The mother wants to move the family out of this cramped kitchenette where, you know, Walter Lee's son has to sleep on the couch and doesn't get enough sleep because sometimes Walter Lee's, you know, hanging out with his friends late at night. You know, the grandmother or, you know, Lena Younger and Benita share a room. So it's really and She feels, the mother feels like it's important for the family to have its own place and she once wanted to support her daughter Benita's dream of becoming a doctor but Sidney Poitier's character Walter Lee wants to go into business he's a chauffeur and he sees he drives around men um, who are doing deals and he sees these young people and he thinks as Sidney Poitier says in the film he his character he thought his character had knew what he was doing he had the wherewithal but he he Sidney talks about how his character really didn't really have you know what it took to even start a liquor store, um, because he didn't have the experience. But he he wanted to be a man, as Sydney says.
1: An important thread throughout your documentary is Lorraine Hansberry's willingness to defy convention. You mentioned the character of beneath What are some other examples? She married a white man and. We said she was a member of the Communist Party. How else did her defiance of convention play out in her life?
0: Well, she was. She believed in the power of art. So one of the things is that she was really outspoken in terms of issues like peace movements. And when Paul Robeson's passport was canceled and he couldn't travel to the World Peace Conference in Uruguay, She took his place, and in fact, she told the State Department she was going to Europe. She went to this, quote-unquote, illegal peace conference in Uruguay, and then when she came back, her passport was canceled, and that's what started her lifelong um, surveillance by the FBI. Such
1: a badge of honor in those days. (laughs) If you were really a great artist, you were on Hoover's list. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, so there's that, and then some people— A lot of people have been aware for some time that Lorraine Hansberry was, you know, secretly a married lesbian. And so that's, for some people, that may be a new revelation. But a lot of people look at the writings that she did to the publication, the latter, which was a publication of uh, an organization called the Daughters of Belitis, like everything she did, she wrestled with ideas and analyzed it, and she was analyzing being a married lesbian and and issues related to being homosexual. So like again, like everything else, it wasn't just light. She really wanted to like examine things, and she had ideas about this and that and looked forward to society changing.
1: Tracy Heather Strain is an award winning documentary filmmaker writer, and producer. Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart can be streamed on Amazon Prime. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back with another show tomorrow at 11 a.m., Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for N-P-R.